Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. They, they were neither holy nor Roman, according to Voltaire, but still they were called the Holy Roman Empire, which is going to be our topic of conversation today. My guest is the writer of the Holy Roman Empire, which I'm trying to hold in front of me right here. And you may know it's in a different title as well, under the book Heart of Europe. And I always ask my guest, how do you, did you get interested in this topic, the Holy Roman Empire? Well, um, that's, that's uh, been a long process, I suppose. I, I think it's partly from a fascination with atlases as a child. So if you open um, a historical atlas uh, in the heart of Europe, in the middle of the page, really, of a map of Europe, is this what seems to be a mess. It's, it's very colourful and all the other countries surrounding it are, are shaded in, in in sort of block colours. And so it was really trying to sort of think, well, why why was that so? Why does it look like that? And of course, you know, the cartographical convention is itself misleading, but I only discovered that, uh, you know, much later on. So that was mm-hmm. one one of the, I guess, one of the main things that drew me in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I'm reading a book about the Scandinavianism, and there was a map from the 1800s where it looks totally different from what European yeah. today's modern world. You wouldn't recognize it, I think, if you if you see a look at it today versus the map in the 1800s. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the, these conventions have changed. You know, what what's important, what what features are shown. Um, you know, tell us a lot about. Uh, um, you know how how past societies have viewed themselves and their their place in the world, and you know the the maps that we have, we tend to have our product really of of nineteenth century conceptions of, of political power and delineating that political power in in a, in a clear way on a map. Yeah, if you look at, for example, on a map from eighteen hundred, you see how dominating France is in Europe versus mm. Prussia or. Then Scandinavian countries, which was a superpower at the time, and the Ottoman Empire. So you see how different it was back then. Yeah, I wanted to let's begin. I want to begin with uh, that this empire, like like you said, it's not an empire before we begin the origin of the empire. That this is not an empire in the traditional sense, is it? Um, yes, that's right. I think that that's really the key to understanding um, how the Holy Roman Empire functioned. Um, we tend to, you know, our, our use of the word empire is, is shaped very much by the experience of the world in the 19th and uh, much of the 20th centuries. So we think when we think of empire, we think of, you know, say the British Empire, you know, the great colonial empires of that of that era, which are characterized by a strong um, metropolitan core that dominates um, a variety of peripheries. Um, so this is a hegemonic uh, um, p- uh, 
polity. And the Holy Roman Empire is certainly not that. And all of the attempts, I mean, I think all the misunderstandings really come from uh, attempts to fit it into that kind of hegemonic mon uh, model. So it, it, it's very much about um, its relationship to, to, the, to its perceived origins in, in ancient Rome as, as um, incorporating the then known world. So it's, it's a different conception of, of, of power and space from our understanding of empire today. I want to ask because do you find it kind of ironic that somebody who actually never were a part of the Roman Empire, the ancient Rome, and they were fighting the Romans for most of the time would end up becoming calling themselves Romans themselves. Do you find that kind of? I mean, of course, time changes in the last four or five hundred years since the Romans fell, but do you find it still kind of ironic? Well, yes, yes, and it, it, exactly. And I mean, you know, the, the, the legacy around um, Europe of, of the word Roman, I mean, obviously, there's the, the region around Rome itself, uh, and to the to the north, and the Romana, which is uh, the, the, the land associated with Rome, which at the time when it gets that label is actually ruled by the Byzantines. And obviously, um, Romania is, is, is the land of the Romans, again, you know, a core part of the Byzantine Empire. So yeah, there are these funny quirks yes and as you say the um the, the holy roman empire is predominantly associated with with german um part of europe um which uh, lay outside the the ancient roman empire yeah and um, uh, let's talk about the origin of the empire because i want to, before we go into chairman i want to talk about his father pepin so how did where where did he come from and how did he become so well known well, the, the, um, these, these are really the, the, the strong men of um, the, the 8th century. So the, the Franks who have emerged in the area between the Loire and the River Main um, and have basically have created a, 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 an empire which is, which is Christian. So they've accepted Christianity. Um, so this is their own, their own kingdom. It's, it's beyond the boundaries of um, uh, what was still claimed as, as part of uh, Rome, which is essentially then based in, in Constantinople. And um, they're, they're seen really as, as militarily successful. Um, they've been able to, to, to defeat a variety of different enemies there in the process, um, especially when, when we move into the later 8th century and with, with Charlemagne, who again is... Uh, you know, has a number of rivals, but emerges as, as really the, the, the key figure um, sort of in the um, 760s or so. Um, and they're expanding in north, northwards and eastwards, as well as having a, a stronghold in, in France and in the Rhineland. And um, it's, it's to this um, powerful family uh, that the, the, the papacy look um, to, for support and th those ties are forged in in the reign of, of Pippin as you say yes and um, then they are consolidated um, under Charlemagne. How does Charlemagne when he how does he form go around forming the empire? Well, um, there we we can we can re reconstruct that. Um, um, obviously, we got to be careful that the, there are very few written sources, and um, many of them are written. Those that we do have are written sometime after the afterwards, and um, you know they want to portray certain figures in a, in a good light. But from the the, the papacy's point of view, they they are. Um, Weak, uh, mainly at that point. So at the end of the, so in in the seven seventies, they've been weak because they've been facing the Lombards, who are um, 
uh, Aryans um, controlling um, much of Italy, especially the south, and um, the, and they're trying to gain control of Rome. And so the papacy is sort of looking to defend itself against those. So um, the Franks are extremely useful at that point in defeating uh, the Lombards, at least in central and northern Italy. Um, but by the, the end of the 8th century, with the papacy under Leo III, um, is suffering from the endemic problems that the papacy had in that uh, Rome is a fairly turbulent city that is controlled also by a number of powerful clans. And the clans are, in fact, competing for uh, amongst each other for control of the city and control of, of the papacy as well. So who get who is pope is often chosen by these these people. And um, Leo is really trying to emancipate himself from that from that struggle and thinks a powerful external sponsor will help. And with um, Charlemagne, uh, he's looking, I think, mainly to consolidate his his hold over um, the newly conquered Lombard lands to, to create a kind of kingdom of Italy um, as an extension of, of his own sort of personal empire. And it's very convenient at that point that there is an interregnum or more or less an interregnum in the Byzantine Empire. Um, the, the, uh, the last emperor there has been blinded by um, his mother who's temporarily taken over. And so is this is, Justinian we're talking about? With this is, um, uh, so um, uh, um, I'm trying to remember, <laughs> his empress, uh, so she's not really... Right, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, right. So, uh, I thought Irene, I was in the wrong uh, yeah, yeah, so this is, this is at the end of the, the, the 8th century. Yeah, so yeah I was is, in the wrong century, I was yeah, in the 5th right. century right now. So, so they're, they're able to, I mean, the, the Byzantine Empire is sort of waxing and waning. Um, and at that point, there's, there's, there's again, there's internal problems. So there's, there's a con, kind of convenient fiction that both the papacy, especially, and but also the Charlemagne as, as king of the Franks, can say that uh, the, the actual Roman Empire is still existing, but is temporarily um, the top position is vacant, and so the uh, the Pope is is basically on the on the basis of really um, no. Uh, formal legitimacy is, is is claiming that he has the right to to, to decide that the, the continuity of the empire now should um, continue in the Franks rather than in the Byzantines. Did they view the Byzantines? So they didn't view the Byzantines or Eastern Romans at the at the time as real Romans. Well, they, they, in the the, West? the last the last um, Byzantine em- emperor to visit Rome, I think, is in the six uh, sixties. Uh, so the, the Byzantines have got um, a lot more problems because of the rise of um, powerful uh, militant Islam. So that's taken over uh, um, Egypt, and which was the kind of breadbasket of um, uh, the Byzantine Empire. So that's created enormous problems that it's expanding into um, southern Italy, into Sicily um, at this point. Um, so the Byzantines have, uh, are really they control some part, parts of southern Italy, and also they they controlled for a while Ravenna. They lose that, um, and they their um, so their position in in the Mediterranean, the southern Mediterranean, is very weak, and they're really preoccupied with that. Rome is is um, God. We have to remember. I mean, Rome is is a, is a city that is now much much smaller than Constantinople. Um, and it's only one of five of the of the um, the patriarchs, so the the five major Christian centres. Um, and so, for the Byzantines, it's not top priority. 
and they they sort of regard the the, the Franks as these kind of barbarians who are on the fringes of their own um, area of interest, which is much more in Asia Minor and and the Eastern Mediterranean at this point. Um, how what was the state of Germany like at this point in time? Did it start to become important towards civilized cities at this time, or were it still tribal? Um, they are well. The, the word "tribal," of course, is is a, is a pro- problematic one. Mm. Um, so uh, you know, there's a tendency to say you know to refer to the Bavarians and the Saxons and so forth as as distinct tribes and. Um, well, that that makes some sense, I suppose, in the sense that they were clearly um, groups that had had distinct identities and, and parts of, of 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 what we now know as Germany is is their is their domain. But um, there, it's 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 a complicated arrangement, really, with um, with leaders who are sort of local strong strong men who are um, have a kind of mixture of um, hereditary. Uh, and 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 more immediate power, and um, the, the the Franks have subdued um, a lot of these, and they uh, the Franks basically um, are uh, the whole creation of the of the Holy Roman Empire. So in, in eight hundred is coupled with a sort of reorganization of the Frankish um, domains, which is sort of underway already before and continues after Charlemagne is formally crowned emperor. And they create this structure of, of, of duchies, so um, that are more or less mapped onto um, the Roman province, the old Roman provinces, which are eff- effectively now ecclesiastical dioceses. And that structure is then extended northwards in, into Germany. So there's a, a wave of Christian missionaries have already been sent out in the 770s. That continues. And there's a, a creation then of these um, bishoprics, uh, which are roughly aligned with, with these duchies, which are then this kind of, um, well, I would hesitate to say administrative areas because they're basically, um, there's a kind of hierarchical sort of, we would, call it loosely feudal i suppose in the sense that you're given the position of duke in return for keeping order drawing resources and assisting the the monarch when 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 needed and the major duchies at this point are largely parceled out amongst um the closest relations of, of the carolingians often their, often their sons were they east to conquer or did they kind of like one sort of voluntarily join they are there i mean they've 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 been conquered um the saxons uh, very brutally um the bavarians um uh, uh, which are in the southeast um who they, these are major buffers really to the slavs so we have to remember that the the boundary between the sort of germanic areas and the slav areas is very different the slav areas extre- extend much further west than they do later on and they control the the north as well so um at this point um, Germany is is, is 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 much more is a narrower um, uh, geographic region and um, has yet really to be sort of properly consolidated into a kingdom. I mean that emerges really with the the changes, the structural changes in the in the Frankish um, monarchy in the in sort of the eight forties. And I remember you mentioned in the book that the Germans actually emigrated to Krakow and. They were originally in German, but eventually they, after the centuries that they didn't, at, at, at stop speaking German. Eventually, 
I guess more Polish if that's the language they were using at the time. Yes, I mean, I, I think this is a, a, again, it's something we got to be we got to be careful about. I mean, the, obviously, people were were conscious of speaking different languages and having different cultures and so on. For, but this idea of nationality, so what we how we would understand somebody as being French or German or Polish, um, was was understood at the time in a very very different way. Yeah. And it's not really until the Renaissance. So the really in, in for Central Europe, that's really we're talking the sort of later mid to late fifteenth century onwards that we begin to get this this more modern idea of, of of nationhood, and that takes again quite a long time to consolidate and to become mainstream. So what what made Barbarossa? Sorry, not Barbarossa. As you said, there is too early there. But uh, what what did made Charlemagne choose Archon as the capital of? The Holy Roman Empire. Well, um, that—that's uh, again. I mean, it's—it's it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, they, monarchs really at this point don't exactly have capitals. They—they they have a number of different centres, um, and they move around. So, this, and this remains a, a characteristic um, in the Holy Roman Empire much longer than it does in other monarchies. So, the French monarchy obviously establishes itself in in Paris and the region around Paris. Obviously, in England, we have London emerging as the royal capital very early on. Um, so, England is a highly centralised state, and that has a lot to do, obviously, with the Norman conquest and so forth as well in the 11th century. Whereas in the Holy Roman Empire, you basically you travel around from monastery to monastery, abbey to abbey, freeloading on 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 the the clergy. And you you have then certain sites which are used for particular things. So Aachen is is a, um, developed very early on by the as you say by Charlemagne, and that's a site for for coronations for a long time, especially as for for as a German king. Um, uh, but Rome is is the is a site for a coronation to be emperor, and that that is a key thing. You the the this, the so you you could rule this this polity of uh, of the empire without actually being crowned emperor, and a number of of, of the kings do that. And as we go into the facts, you not just a few emperors actually went to Rome later on. There's just uh, most of them didn't, didn't in fact go to Rome to get crowned. Is that right? Yes, I mean it, it, again, it it varies um, from from time to time. Um, so uh, the, the 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 there are periods where where um, the, the the Rome journey, as it was known, um, were more common, and then you have successive uh, uh, monarchs being crowned emperor, um, but often uh, you know many years into their actual reign, and then there are gaps. So there's a there's there's a, a fairly lengthy gap in the. 10th century of about sort of 38 years or so before um, Otto the first, uh, sorry, Otto the, the, the um, yes, Otto the first. Uh, so in in, nine, in 962, um, which is often seen as a kind of major refounding of the empire because there has been this sort of gap. And it's certainly important for, for bringing the imperial title back to uh, the, its association with the, with the German kingdom. Um, and then there are gaps again. I mean, there's considerable gaps in the in the thirteenth um, century, and uh, then the last um, uh, the last coronation, of course, by a, uh, by a pope is is not in Rome at all. It's in Bologna, and that's uh, with Charles the Charles the Fifth. 
and thereafter they're they're only crowned in um, in Germany in Frankfurt. And as maybe well, well known that in the in the first few centuries called the Holy Roman Empire. When did it start using the title Holy Roman Empire? Well, that that's I think the first um, main recorded. Uh, I think the first properly recorded instance of that is very late, really. You know, if we're thinking that this is founded on Christmas Day in eight hundred, and it's not until June eleven um, eighty that uh, that that combination of these three three words are are put together, and that is due to. Um, certain changes, so a, a, a new um, and a new idea of monarchy, which is uh, much more sacralized. So it has a um, that the monarch himself has this uh, much more sort of um, spiritual role. Um, as that idea has emerged. Um, it's also in riposte to the papacy um, uh, and challenge from the from the reformed papacy of the late. Um, the later uh, 11th century, um, but there's never an official title. And empire is the one consistent thing. And you're much more likely to have Roman Empire um, and then, uh, or just empire, um, very occasionally holy empire. Um, and sort of the, the, three, the three words put together, it does become more common, certainly once you get into um, more pronounced written culture and the re- recording things in, in more and more documents. So in the 13th, 14th, especially 14th, 15th century. Um, but this idea that, you know, the full title is the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation is, is definitely not the case. And Catholics, for example, are much more likely to use, um, add the, the, the adjective holy in the 16th century than Protestants who just call it the, the empire. Did the Byzantines, and this is kind of two-part questions, did the Byzantines recognize them as Romans? Did they realize they can't be Romans? We are the true Romans in the world. And what was the relationships like between the Byzantines and the Holy Romans? As we know, they did help out in crusades, but in general, what was... It's very, very distant, um, really, and neither, neither can recognize the other. Um, so, uh, from the Byzantine point of view, the, the, these these are all usurpers, and and that this is they don't really exist at all. Um, so, if the Byzantines have um, contact with um, uh, the Holy Roman Empire, they they use the the, the, the term um, basilis, which is not it's a kind of stage lesser than than emperor. So they're not it's not imperator. That's that's only in in Constantinople, and likewise um, the the Holy Roman Empire. So in its dealings with the Byzantines, tended to refer to them as kings of the Greeks, um, because you know there can only this is the key point. There can only be one empire. This is a world where the idea that the that the there is a single um, civilized space. And that is a Christian space. And so that's associated with Christianity. And there are, of course, problems when the differences between the different strands of Christianity grow more pronounced. Uh, And because of the close relationship between spiritual authority and political power, there can only be one political space. So both Christian and both uh, and simultaneously then this 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 empire. So you cannot possibly recognize um, a second empire. Um, because that that that's just inconceivable that 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 would exist. So, 
did the Greeks, I assume the Greeks Christian didn't help at all with the relationship between uh, the Romans and the Byzantines. I mean, there, there are, there are, you know, they, they, they start off on a bad foot. Um, it doesn't help that that Charlemagne goes and, and conquers a bit more of the of the um, uh, lands that were controlled by the Byzantine Empire. But they basically they they are preoccupied by their own problems for much of the time. There are attempts to forge better relations. Um, so there is a, there's a, some Byzantine princesses who, who marry a number of emperors. So most most notably um, with with Otto the um, first, but um, and then as you say, there are the, the Crusades, which are of course a, a sign that the Byzantine Empire is is weakening, and um, so there's the, the the desire to go and, and assist mainly. Um, of course, to defend the, the holy sites um, rather than directly help out the Byzantines. And of course, the Byzantines actually find the Crusaders a bit of a bit of a problem much of the time because they're they're spending more of their time plundering the Byzantines than yeah. they are fighting the the, the uh, uh, to to recover the holy sites. And wasn't there one Byzantine princess who was supposed to marry an and emperor in the Holy Romans, but he died before she got there. Yes, yes, yes. There are a number of there are a number of occasions like this where there are attempts to forge better relations, which which um, which don't really uh, don't really work out. And right at the end, um, I mean, at one point, very very um, fleetingly, the the Byzantine Empire, um, theory, you know, formally um, acknowledges the authority of the Holy Roman Empire. That's at the sort of very end of the um, 12th century but that's only for a very uh, short time and then there's a, there's a petition from them right at the towards the end in the 15th century when the the Turkish grip is is pretty tight around Constantinople and they're trying to to, to, to get them to get aid but um, yeah they, they, that doesn't uh, doesn't work now the next bit I want to talk about the succession of the crown and because it wasn't necessarily like again in the traditional sense that it was dynastic, but in the early beginning, I believe it was dynastic lineage that the son of the emperor would be from the next emperor. But that we will get into Habsburgs, of course, as we get on later on in the period. But in the, how did you how did you become emperor in the Holy Romans? Right. Well, I, first of all, I think we can separate the process um, from from the person. So. Uh, from who should be emperor. So if we think of the, of the process, um, so again, we've got to free ourselves from how we understand monarchy today. So for us, it seems self-explanatory, you know, monarchy is, is, is hereditary. And that but as we worked. know, in England in the old days, they were killing each other, right? Well, that's <laughs> right. Uh, but I mean, the, the, you know, if we, if we go far enough back, um, there, there's, there's, there, there's no, there are no constitutional documents, there are no formal written rules that, that say how this should be, um, and. Uh, but adoption also... in the early days as well, where China considered like this, this Masonism lineage is my. Here. Yes, that's right. So one of the one of the key things that um, uh, that that can assist you to become king is that you come from the from royal blood. So that you so that's obviously where the hereditary aspect comes in. Um, but that that didn't necessarily in in sort of early medieval Europe that didn't mean that you were automatically going to be chosen um, because uh, to to be a king you also have to be acknowledged a king. 
Um, and that process of being acknowledged by the other powerful people of, in the kingdom um, is absolutely vital because that, that just determines on, you know, whether they're going to accept you and whether they're going to cooperate. So this process of, of hereditary rights and election are actually blurred in together for most of the time. And they're not necessarily antagonistic because from the point of view of the people who are acknowledging the king, you know, they, there's a potentially there's a choice. They might have a number of people who seem, seem suitable. And one of the things that might make them suitable is that they are a relation of the, of the, um, the current king or the previous king. Um, but it, other things could play out too, that, you know, are they going to be the right kind of king? Are they um, going to be a successful warrior? Are they going to fill, fulfill um, the, the, the duties that are expected of a king? And are they going to make sure that, you know, from the noble's point of view, they, they're going to uh, not um, put too many noses out of joint and, and, mm. and, and bully the nobles and, and, and uh, exceed their, in other words, from the noble's point of view, not rule like you should do as a king. So, they, so the, the, there was always a process of, of negotiation. Um, and the, the, with the empire, the, the critical thing in the longer term is that that process does become um, uh, one which entrenches elective monarchy. Um, but the great irony is that the point when elective monarchy is formally constituted and begins to get consoli consolidated in written documents, we actually have um, a trend towards hereditary succession. So... Mm -hmm. Once the Habsburgs fully become established, so in the sort of um, 1430s onwards, um, there's only one other, uh, you know, once between then and the em end of the empire that, that, that the electors actually choose anyone else. <laughs> um, I just want to put it this way, and then, and then in a lack of a better word, can you get sort of fired from the job without, I mean, not like the Byzantines did when they coup the tower, but can, can you like, you're not fit for this job, you're, you just had to go to exile or you're yes. not fit to rule. Yes, indeed. And, and um, the, there are uh, the, the, the kind of the anti-kings. So um, the, the, the first one is a challenger to um, Henry IV. Um, so this is in the, in the middle of the, or in the, second half of the 11th century and this we we got to remember that these challenges i mean people didn't do this lightly so this these things happen but they they happen for for what the those involved felt was a good reason and the reason is they think henry the fourth is 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 ruining the the empire he's engaged in this conflict with the papacy um, some of the um, opponents of Henry IV sympathise with what the Pope is trying to do. So there's a whole bundle of reasons. It's not just personal ambition. So that's the first time in the um, 1070s when they elect, they choose a, a rival. And Henry IV is remarkably successful. He sees off four challengers this way, including two of his own sons, which shows you actually the dangers of hereditary succession. So he names one of his sons who then, as his successor, who then promptly rebels. And so when he when he's finally got, got sort, him sorted out, he names another son as his successor, who then also promptly rebels and ultimately succeeds him because in the meantime he dies. So, you know, hereditary succession is, is not necessarily a guarantee for, for stability either. And I, I don't know what to compare to the Byzantines, but... 
Well, because I wanted to ask you, how often is that true that our attempts try and very often successful? Because if you know, in Byzantine history, there's quite a lot of true that that succeed, both succeed and fail, as we talked about in Nature Forest, the third episode a while back now. it's uh, yeah. There was three attempts to dethrone him, and then the Alexius would succeed. So how, how often did it happen, occur, and did it, did it often succeed? No, they don't actually, and there are, there's there are really there are not many um, anti kings uh, in the in the history of the of the empire. Um, I think there That's are quite impressive actually. Yeah, considering the, there are, yeah, the there era. are there are four um, there are four double elections. So an anti king is somebody who's chosen while there's already a, a monarch, um, and uh, they they succeed. Um, more or less, I think there are two. There are two depositions. So when the, when the the ruler is deposed and is is effectively successfully replaced, um, and then there are four um, double elections of which only two lead to to civil wars. Um, so that's not to say that you know the empire is this great haven of peace and tranquility, um, but the, it actually coped in in some respects relatively well i mean one of the critical problems of hereditary succession is you've got to accept whoever the heir is and that heir might be a, a child um so then you have competition over regency and that often led to civil war so the the english monarchy suffers from that quite a lot the empire by having um, an elective monarchy very rarely had any um uh, minors um, succeeding so that happens during the Ottonians and there are problems in fact because of that and there's a dispute over that that happens again at the beginning of Henry the fourth reign there's a um, rivalry amongst the, the, the big nobles as to you know who should have the, the greatest say but by and large they're choosing an adult so you avoid some of those kind of um, problems that pure hereditary succession brought with it and uh... I want to ask, yes, and this brings us to the next part of governing, like we said in early in the episode, this wasn't a traditional empire in the sense that this was one ruled by one person and it was one big empire and it was out of few governors here and there, but it was several provinces that was included. So how did tax revenue work to the empire? How did the governing of the provinces work mm-hmm. in, uh, in the empire? Um, and again, I think I think the way to understand this is to sort of divest ourselves with what we think a state should do. So we think nowadays, you know, the state provides services and it regulates the economy and a whole host of activities. And the state there must have been a governor of some kind, right? Well, in, in each like there is. duke or whatever. What there the, is, what but, they, but we 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 look very much today. We look towards a central authority to do that. And it's top down. I mean, yes, we have local uh, local governance, but and that's always within this hierarchical structure. It, within the empire, as in much of medieval Europe, um, things were heavily decentralised. So real power is is very much at the the level of the of the manor and the and the village and uh, and the local community. And so the the empire is basically there um, to. Uh, 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 in, in case that local level fails to deliver, or there's, or more, more usually where that local level um, breaks down into some kind of disorder. So this is one of the reasons why the emperor would travel around so much. I mean, he's basically um, uh, symbolising uh, good order. So he would pitch up 
um, people would come with their problems and he would sort of ceremonially sort them out. It didn't really matter whether he really did sort them out or not. The key thing was that he's seen to be doing that and that sustains this, this belief that there, uh, uh, over these great mass of these numerous communities there is this higher level which, which symbolises justice um, and is a kind of intermediary between the population and, and, and God, really. Kind of reminds me a bit of the Monty Python part in the Holy Grail where they meet the source that's the that's in, yeah. in, in a field where we don't have a king here. We're just <laughs> rich. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, most 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 of the inhabitants wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have seen the emperor. Not until the the kind of the early modern period where you then get um, imprinted images. I mean, Char- Charles the the fourth is really so in the middle of the uh, 14th century is the first to begin to this kind of um, projection of an image of, of pictures of himself and, and this idea that uh, he will be at least known to his subjects in this more virtual format. Before we touch on the more Christianity side of the empire and I want to something I found fascinating in your book is that Alemannia comes from the in touch previous sentence of this, I don't sure if you remember, but Alemania comes from the whole Roman Empire, that that's how Spanish today says, as we know, Alemania as German. Mm. Tell me a little bit about that, how Alemania became, as well as the Spanish word for Germany, and how the origins of Alemania was. Well, they, they uh, I mean, the Alemanni are, are not, uh, another one of these peoples that are uh, sort of kicking around in the kind of immediate post-Roman world, sort of in the in the south um, southwest of, of um, what we now know as Germany. And yeah, and this is also it's the origins because they're the ones that are most proximate to um, to Italy. If you're travelling up from across the Alps, or if you're coming over the Rhine, so. Um, people that are encountering them um, often use that 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 word and, and extend that word for um, the, all the peoples then north of the Alps or east of the Rhine. So uh, Alemania in French as well. So it, it tends to it has that origins. Yeah. And uh, that brings us to the next part, which is something you mentioned again. I found fascinating that. In the in the early days, at least, Christianity was not as. I mean, spoken about it so briefly before we recorded that Christianity was mostly for the elite, and, but but it wasn't the sense that we recognize it today. So how how was it? What about the poorer classes? Did they care at all about religion, or was they were they pagan still? Um, well, I, th- I think they certainly yes, they, they care about religion because um, religion is inseparable from so much of life, but their understanding of religion was not necessarily that of the priest and certainly not necessarily that of the of the bishop and 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 then the the, the ruling elite and again that's that's not uh, untypical that you would find that in other parts of of, of europe but they um, wouldn't go to church in the traditional sense that they would later in the 18th and 19th well century. It, it's it's it, the the sort of a lot of the Christianizing process, certainly in the in the eighth um, and ninth century, at the time of the sort of founding of the of the empire and the, the Frankish kingdom, is pretty brutal. I mean, uh, and it, it, it's coupled with the extension of um, of political power. Um, so uh, it, there's a kind of positive feedback loop here that um, uh, you know. So so this is a warrior culture, really, and it's remained so very much into the. Um, Sort of uh, at least into the into the 13th century, uh, with uh, strong uh, elements of it beyond. So, 
you know, you're, you, what you're really interested in is is is, is obtaining um, certainly in the early part of this, you're obtaining people because people are valuable and they they do things for you and and riches, and you get this by by warfare. Um, but you're, you're also concerned for your immortal soul because you've you've adopted Christianity. So you're you can't, you, you're going to endow some of your wealth um, to the church because that's clearly a, a good deed and that will help you um, for your salvation. Um, and you want to make sure that that wealth uh, doesn't fall into the hands of your rivals. So the church is a very good organization from that point of view because it's um uh, the church is, is transpersonal there's no um hereditary property there it belongs to the church so your your daughter or your sister can be maneuvered in as, as an abbess or a, or a nun so the church provides sort of welfare for um all of these uh, additional uh, members of, a, of an aristocratic family um, so you want to make sure that the population are believing this too um, and again that fits uh, obviously if people vary in their degree of spirituality no one is it's an atheist and no one is really doing this cynically but the, we got to atheism remember this. didn't become a thing in the Renaissance absolutely right? yeah so we, we, we can't we, we can't see these people as acting cynically there's but there's a strong uh, mixture of, of sort of self-interest with their with their kind of desire to Christianize, um, which brings us to the toleration in the empire and uh, how what how was it towards Jewish Jews and uh, other religion uh, other other religions? If how, I don't know how many religions there were in Europe at the time, but I was reading another book about uh, Christianity and, and Islam and Judaism and. Where the, especially in the Crusades again, and where the Christ, Christians would go into Jewish homes, slaughter the Jews, and uh, not very tolerant at that time. But uh, and it kind of reminds me who were the bad guys again, you know? Yeah, yeah. But what in general, what was apart from the Crusades, with the Crusades as well, and outside the Crusades, what was toleration like? Well, um, I mean, you, you the, the, um, uh, a, a significant part proportion of the population in the, at the very beginning of the time frame that we're looking at um, are largely outside the influence of the empire. They're on the margins of the empire and they are the Slavs. So from the Christian's point of view, they're pagans. Um, and uh, and the word Slav, of course, is, is cognate with slave. So there are these... The, these military campaigns are also expeditions to capture people and um, the Carolingians are trading these with um, uh, the inhabitants of, uh, uh, of Moorish Spain and so they're selling them in fact to become soldiers and so there's a, there's a whole complicated thing which of course means that people are moving through these areas as well and so there are, and with the subsequent expansion of the, of the empire into the areas that have been controlled by the Slavs is a renewed wave of Christianization, the establishment of new um, bishoprics and, and so forth. But there are some pockets of, of, of sort of Slavic beliefs and Slavic practices which persist for quite a long time in the, on the eastern margins of, of the empire. But otherwise, we would say the population is broadly Christian, but 
what their their actual beliefs and practices would be quite heterodox because it takes a long time for the Christian Church to work out exactly what its own beliefs are. I mean, yes, in the in the ninth century, probably most churches there is at least one Bible, written Bible, but there's only one person in the village who would probably read it. So you're very dependent on this one person and their ability to to teach you what Christianity means. So it takes a very long time. And as I say, it, it's not a single process because the belief, the, the understanding of Christianity is, is changing. So you're quite right to draw our attention to the to the, the other group that exists, which are the, the Jews. And they suffer, a, a, well, they have a sort of a variable fate. Um, but one, I think one could say that by and large, compared with some of the other European monarchies, the empire's record is slightly better. I mean, mainly because the Jews become a, a minority which is under direct imperial um, protection. So they have to pay for this, but it gives the emperor um, a reason to protect them. So if you if you attack the Jews, then in a sense you're attacking the emperor, and so um, that gives the, the Jewish population some chance of getting some kind of protection and some redress and some emperors are better at doing this than others i believe barbarossa if i'm not wrong was very protective of the jews yes yes he he he's definitely one of the one of the better ones and there are a number of mandates and um later on so this we're now talking in the uh sort of in the late 12th century and in again in the um, uh, in the early thirteenth um, century, there are uh, renewed attempts to to protect the Jews, and these are relatively effective, particularly as we come into um, early modernity. So, in the sixteenth, the seventeenth, and the eighteenth century, um, yes, the Jew the Jews re- represented a population that was discriminated against, but they did have considerable legal protections, much better legal protections, in fact, than in many other European countries. Which brings us to Barbarossa. How how does he end up growing in the crusade? Because he has one of the large second crusades. We had first and then second crusade on the Combs. And how does he end up having one of the largest armies in Europe at the time? Well, he's been uh, he spent most of his his, his reign consolidating. And his, uh, before this, I want to ask: How does it come to power? Well, yes, the. Um, uh th- this this is uh so we 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 as you say we're talking about um the uh yeah the 12th century so this is the um uh, uh one of the periods where the where the um the Im- imperial power within the empire is, is is undergoing again a process of renewal so um um it, they have lost um influence in italy so um, Barbarossa has been trying to, to reassert his authority, not terribly successfully um, in many areas. Uh, but the, the, the trigger really is uh, are, are the um, uh, the events in the in the Holy Land, and again another appeal. So going on a crusade, um, the Crusades had been really a, a, a papal and French project um, from the. Um, later 11th century and it was part of i mean obviously there's there's a practical reason the need to um resist the muslim incursions into um the byzantine empire and the, and, and the threat to the holy sites but it's also was part of a way in which the papacy could um realign its relations with other european monarchs and the french monarchy is is a 
keen contributor to this. So the the initial thing was actually to outmaneuver the emperor and to discredit the emperor. You know, the the true protector of the of Christendom is not the emperor; it's actually the papacy and and his French allies. So Barbarossa is kind of very belatedly addressing some of that by um, going on this on this crusade, which of course is from his point of view not not successful. Um, but it doesn't stop him being celebrated as a, as, as a great warrior. And uh, as we know, he drowns eventually. So, so I, I do have a little joke about how he, when he drowns, that he, the soldiers are just standing in the side and looking at him drowning and they discuss, should we save him? I don't kind of don't want to go out there because I'm wet, I'm wearing my armour. I don't really want. I don't don't really know, want to get wet right now. And uh, she was saving. They having this long discussion, and when they decide to save him, it's too late it's because he has already thrown. And they wrap up and they go home. Hmm. So, yes, but... it's, it's it's definitely it's definitely very. Uh, it, it's it's from that point of view, it's it's unsuccessful. He's on. He's he's retreating um, at the at the point when when that happens. Yeah. So also it's already on its way back yeah. when it's run. But why, why does why does it doesn't complete the crusade in the first place? Why well, does it, it turn around? I mean, one of one of the one of the problems is you know just the, the sheer length of time it takes to 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 to, to do that to to go on a um, on a campaign like that um, and a huge logistical effort. Um, so this is you know crossing Asia Minor. It's the problems of. Um, relying on um, collaboration with the Byzantines in order to, for this to, to, to work. Um, and then the uh, limited opportunities really to, to actually um, score a major victory or to do anything meaningful once you've actually got to, into um, uh, sort of the area of, uh, of, of you know, near Antioch, so in the sort of modern area of Syria. Um, and there are, does, this takes ages uh, and all sorts of things are happening back in the empire while all this is going on. So um, you can't really do this very successfully, um, or you either can't be out of uh, out of the empire for for long. And the the one who does this successfully, it does this in a in a much less belligerent way, which is Frederick the um, the, the second, who basically arrives in in Jerusalem, is able to negotiate a local truce um, uh, that will allow access to pilgrims. Um, and then goes home again, uh, and this is sort of you know in, in a sense it's a great triumph. He's he's got regained access to Jerusalem, so the uh, the, the Pope is very very annoyed by this because it's just, you know there's a kind of tussle between the Emperor and the Papacy at this point. Um, but he's done it in this kind of unheroic way, which which allows his enemies to criticise him. So I'm I'm sure we're skipping a few centuries here, but that. How was Navigram more into the fifteenth century? I presume, but how does the Habsburgs get into power? What? How did they gain its throne? What the Holy Roman Empire? And what is the Holy Roman Empire like at this time? Right. Well, as you say, we will we will have um, jumped a number of centuries. So the, the the most important thing really that we're jumping over is what's happening in the in the eleventh century, which is basically a shift from those kind of big Duchies, which had been set up um, with, under the Carolingians as, as these kind of ways of running um, regions. And these have become more and more fragmented. And one of the reasons why you do this is you can, you can reward more people by 
making them count of, of this part of that duchy or maybe splitting the duchy into two duchies or three duchies. So you create then a bigger pool of nobles who you can then call upon um, when you need to launch a campaign, such as, as, as Barbarossa's campaigns in Italy or indeed the Crusade. So this process has, has, has happened. It's created this um, much larger number of, 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 of uh, nobles, really, in the empire. And so as you have more, um, you also have uh, uh, greater distinctions between them. So it's, it's not only do we have more nobles, but we have a, a, an increasingly defined hierarchy. And so by the time you come through into the 13th century, there is a competition really between the really big families, of which there are very few, and um, rather than the great mass of the nobles. So the, the, the struggles over the, over the empire in the, in the later Middle Ages are really just between a few big families. And they're the, they're, that's, that's the case because they're really the only ones who've got the ability to sustain the role of monarch because there, there are really no kind of direct taxes or crown lands that could support you. It's, it's it has to kind of save the empire in a sense. Well, in a, in a way, what, what you've got is, is, is they emerge as the, as the, um, the best choice really by the, um, by the 13th, by the, the uh, 15th century is the, 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 under the Luxembourg family, which is the, uh, one of the other big families, So they're um, basically um, from the um, early uh, 14th century. They've shifted. They recognize you, you can't govern this, this the, the empire really by expecting uh, the inhabitants to pay you lots of taxes. Um, you've got to build up um, your own power base mm -hmm. of land that you control directly rather than having to negotiate all the time with all of these nobles or with the towns which are becoming more important or with the bishops of the imperial church so they create a big um, block which is basically based although they're the luxembourg family their power base is actually in bohemia um, and the habsburgs have been doing the same and they create the base which is in, in austria although they originally came from switzerland and so by when the luxembourgs um, die out um, the the best option seems to pick the to be to, from the, the powerful nobles is to pick the Habsburgs because they have the um, resources to, to sustain this role without anyone else having to pay for it so much, and it, that's necessary because the, of the kind of problems that are that are present by that point, which is that the Turks are much more powerful in the Balkans. They've been advancing through. They're going to capture Constantinople in in. 1453 they're knocking on the door of of hungary which was a powerful monarchy at that point but um is, is which i would like to add quite that we brittle made a, i would like to add that we made an episode about the fall of constantinople with professor right. Roger crowley a few episodes back so if you want to know more i would highly recommend watching that episode Yeah, so this is um, exactly so. When you when you when you come into the into the sort of mid 14th century, uh, 15th century, when that when that is happening, um, you know the best bet seems to be to pick the pick the Habsburgs because they are the only ones who at that point can launch operations really um, in 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 the, to fight off the, the the Turkish threat. So, 
something that we haven't touched much upon but the size of the empires we seen if you look at the map is quite past most of Europe but it already quite good at keeping the same size during its life lifetime that it does it does not unlike the Byzantine Empire which again I would like to compare to sinks and then regain its power and then sink again or do they will maintain the relative same size throughout its lifespan um it 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 does change considerably um i mean the, the thing is it doesn't have um formal frontiers uh, for most of the time so the, the again part of part of the idea if you conceive of um the just being a single um civilized political and religious space um then that's universal and you can't put a limit to it so you don't have recognized frontiers and also the idea there is only one empire and emperor then you're automatically superior to any other monarch. So in a sense, all these other monarchies, like the one in Spain or the one in France uh, or Denmark, they're all, they're all inferior to you. So it doesn't kind of matter too much. You can pretend, if you like, that you know somehow that they're somehow subordinate to you, even if, of course, they're not and they're off busy ruling themselves. But if we look at it in more practical terms as to what as those areas that are really do have some kind of connection, then um, the the empire in fact grows. Um, it gr it grows under the um, under the Ottonians, so it pushes eastwards. So in the um, in the tenth century, um, and it grows again significantly um, with the so-called Northern Crusade, which is these sustained campaigns against in the Baltic region against the Slavs. Where this is where it pushes into northeastern Germany. Um, and so that's in the um, the 12th century and um, into the 13th century. And then it remains more or less static, but it's not integrated really in the sense that it's, a lot of this area is only really loosely associated with the empire until it becomes much more consolidated in the later 15th century. Mm -hmm. And then it, it does remain more or less intact. Um, it loses some bits to France in the 17th century. Um, but it's not really until the end of the, the 18th century when um, the, the, the physical size of the empire diminishes. And I, I believe one of the most famous rulers in the empire under the Habsburg would be Maximilian. So tell me about Maximilian's rule as um, the Holy Roman Emperor. Yes, I think uh, absolutely. I mean, Maximilian is, is a really key figure because um, this is at the point where the Habsburgs um, acquire this kind of dual um, persona that they are not only do they have um, uh, a very powerful significant block of territory in the empire that basically means that they really they've become the only choice the only logical choice for emperor but they also acquire lands that are now quite clearly outside the empire so as the understanding of boundaries is firmed up and the, we, we now begin to, to think of the empire really as what we would now call Germany, um, the Netherlands and Northern Italy and other bits of, of sort of Western Poland. That's really the empire. Um, but the Habsburgs at this point, thanks to all the kind of marriage alliances that Maximilian um, forges, the Habsburgs are going to inherit um, Spain. That's in 1516. And then they inherit um, Hungary at the point when it, Hungary is, is, is collapsing uh, in the midst of, a, of an Ottoman invasion. So the Habsburgs acquire these possessions that are outside the empire that give them a kind of European presence um, 
uh, and this is sort of mutually reinforcing, but it does give them this kind of um, dual persona. They have these interests which are very dynastic as well as representing the empire. Um, something I want to touch a little bit about is living in the empire and as a regular citizen, if you will. So was it what was it like for in a in a village under the empire? Was it like any other medieval town, or was it different? Yes. Yeah, I would. I, 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 yeah, I would. I would say so. I mean, I, I think one of the, the, if we want to draw out some of the characteristics, is that, um, I mean, political power really in the empire is you can sit vertically and so that's obviously with the emperor at the top and this hierarchy of princes and these different layers of authority but you can also see it horizontally which is um, more communal self-government and that is really very very strongly established um, uh, in in the empire and is sort of reinforced by the experience of the black death um, which of course uh, reduces the population very, very substantially, and that actually increases the bargaining power of the survivors. So lords are forced to um, concede greater um, autonomy to villages and, and especially to, to towns in return for continued acceptance of their overall authority. And that consolidates that communal self-government in which enfranchised uh, inhabitants, so usually the male head of, of each family, would have some kind of rights where you would be able to to um, to vote for a, a, a village council or a town council, and you'd have some kind of stake in that in in, in running your community. And we touched thought a little bit about this earlier, but I wanted to wait with this question because what when Constantinople fell, fell in fourteen fifty three, what was their reaction in the West of the Empire? Did it was like, yes, we are the only Romans left now, <laughs> or really like devastated? Oh, oh I think I fall? think yeah, I think it's 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 seen as a disaster, obviously, um, but the full implications of of, of it are, are are only felt, you know, in in sort of gradually in in waves as as that becomes more more apparent. I mean, they they they're certainly not celebrating it on on the basis that, uh, well, now we're we're the only we're the only empire because they've always considered themselves that. So, and from that point of view, it doesn't make any difference. It's the end of the Greeks, uh, not the end of the of a, of the Roman Empire. Uh, another question I would ask because the siege of Vienna, as as we know, is quite a significant event in European history, and as we know, know the whole Romans contributed a little bit to the help in the in the, in the both sieges, the first and the second. But what would be the difference between in between the first and the help in to, with the first siege and the second siege? Well, the the um, I mean, in both cases, so the first siege, in contribution wise, something. Uh, yeah. Thinking. So for the the first siege, so um, fifteen uh, twenty nine, um, is is really uh, one of the the elements which is helping to consolidate now a kind of institutional structure in the empire, mechanism for raising military contingents and money from the different German principalities. So these are collectively agreed and then they're voted on and then they're provided 
um, uh, to to the emperor for, uh, to join the forces that the emperor has raised from his own inhabitants. So they, this is fairly substantial. It's about a third of the overall forces. So roughly a third is coming from the German principalities and towns. A third is coming from the Austrian lands and Bohemia, and about a third is coming from the the Habsburg part of Hungary. And that that kind of balance, broadly speaking, is 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 maintained really into the um, early 18th century in these great wars against the Turks and the success of, of defending Vienna the second time, 1683, um, this, is, this is really, a, as you say, it's decisive because in the past, the Habsburgs have always, you know, if they've beaten off an attack, they think, oh, thank goodness, we'll, we'll pay some tribute to the Turks and they'll leave us alone for a bit. And Leopold I decides in, in 1684, so the year after the siege has been relieved, no, we're going to go and we're going to conquer the whole of Hungary and end this problem, you know, for, for good. And it takes a long time, but by 1699, they've thoroughly defeated the Turks. They've, recon they've conquered Hungary and Transylvania. And Austria is now a great European power in its own right. And it has the resources to, to wage war, really, in its, in its own right, whether the rest of the empire wanted to or not. Something that I that I want to talk about as well in, in the 18th century, Sweden became a dominant power in Europe. And it does come from parts of Poland and part of Germany as well. Are, are they worried that like Swedish so Swedes are going to dominate Germany eventually? Or are they not as worried that they had the power to conquer the entire Germany and take down their empire? Well, they, they um, uh, I mean, this is, this is then, so in the, in the 1620s, yes, as you say, so mm -hmm. Gustavus Adolphus, um, and he's not been that successful. I mean, the Poles are basically, they've lost some um, territory on the Baltic coast, but they've also fought him to a standstill. Um, and it's basically the French broker, this intervention in the Thirty Years' War, is, it's, it's effectively been over. The emperor has won by 1629. He's defeated the Danes. Um, it's a great success. And France wants to restart the war. And, um, you know, there are various other factors as well. But one of the key things is the, the French broker a truce with the Poles that enables the, um, the Swedes, who are then being financed partly by the French, to intervene. And no one really expects them to do very well and it takes a whole year before um, Gustavus Adolphus really wins a convincing victory at the Battle of Breitenfeld and that's transformed things. Now the Swedes um, you know, seem reliable, the various enemies of the emperor can join the Swedes, they think it's safe to do so um, and momentarily the, the Swedes become extraordinarily powerful within the empire almost to the point that it looks as if they might displace the emperor and take over effectively take over so they the are empire. worried about the swedish threats coming into then it, at this point yes this is really it's an existential crisis um and a combination of uh the resilience of the habsburg monarchy gustavus adolphus's death in battle and so on um eventually sort of blocks this and sweden by the time the war ends in 1648 um, Sweden is, is happy to accept what are very substantial territorial gains, but to accept them as remaining part of the empire. So it actually makes the Swedish king both, he's still Swedish king, but he's simultaneously also part of the empire on behalf of these German possessions that he's acquired. I want to ask you as well, and this is probably way earlier on, why, why don't they choose the invades to the name of this? 
as Scandinavia when they are weak and they don't really have an empire. They're mostly pagans in and Krishnas then. Um, what? Why? Why did? Why they? Why well, don't they choose to invade Scandinavia right. as, a, as they are kind of powerless in a sense against well, this? This, this, is, this is sort of you know if you think if you're if you're living in the in sort of the early uh, Middle Ages, um, you know, for example, the only place in 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 Europe in the sort of ninth tenth century or so where gold coins are circulating is in southern Italy. You know, that's where the real money is. You know, you you don't want to go all the way to the north in, into mm. into frozen Scandinavia that seems yeah. to have nothing to offer. And periodically they send missionaries there and they all get murdered or come mm. you know come back disheartened. So it's, you know, it's, it's, this doesn't seem to be very much doing up there. And Denmark is different because, of course, Denmark is um, controls by the early modernity, controls the sound and becomes very rich mm. and, and so forth. So they're different. But the Swedes and the Norwegians are seen as, you know, very, very, and the Finns are seen as very odd from the perspective of, of right. most of the inhabitants of the empire. And, and that's really, as I say, that's one of the, the shocks of, of the Swedish success in the 1630s, sort of suddenly we got to take notice of these these barbarians. Mm. Yeah. Right. Uh, is this when we start to see the decline of the empire that they start to fall at this point? Um, well, I, I, and that's the conventional, the much older view, and that's the view which I've spent quite a long time in my career arguing against. I mean, I think the word decline has that sense of inevitability about that, and that's really not the case. I think what we're seeing is change. I mean, the empire is not the same. It changes. Some elements, one might say, work more effectively. Other elements work less effectively. It depends on your perspective and what, what people were trying to, trying to achieve. And I think that there is there's, there's no sense of, of um, inevitable decline. But I think that by the time we get to the um, later 18th century, uh, it's, it's very unlikely that the empire in its you know, established form would have persisted that much longer um, because the, the whole relations between those rulers and ruled are changing. Um, you know, the economic basis is, is changing and attitudes to politics and attitudes to identity are, are changing and most fundamentally we now have two German great powers we've had, alongside Austria we've also got Prussia and that is, is a tension within the empire that is going to be one of the key things that causes it to collapse and um, it's probably an obvious answer to this but why did they because they were still think big and the development and the colonialism heyday. So why did they choose to take part of colonialism in the whole Roman Empire? That they uh, choose to expand to the Americas when they were discovered or into Asia and the right. colonialism. Yeah, I mean one one of the one of the factors there is is the partition of the Spanish Empire. So um, the impossibility of ruling all of these possessions with with the available you know um, techniques and instruments of government in the middle of the 16th century leads to this the partition and the the Spain's overseas possessions at that point um, you know that the, the obviously have have been part of the patrimony of Charles V are then passed on to his son Philip II. So there's kind of there is no there's there's no direct engagement if you say with that, that kind of European um, uh, um, expansion that way. But that doesn't mean that the the people from um, 
the inhabitants of, of Germany um, aren't very fully involved in this. So um, the Fugger bankers, for example, um, but also loads of, of ordinary mm. Germans. So the, the, the Dutch East India Company, so one of the foremost um, trading companies of early modernity, relied very heavily on German sailors and German soldiers. Um, so there's there's plenty of involvement, but not in the sense that these that they weren't creating... inter- they weren't necessarily interested in colonialism. Well, they they I, I think that that they, they are um, their interests and so on. We've got to remember, I mean, that, that, that Central Europe is is is, is relatively rich. Um, that the uh, some people are getting enormously wealthy from colonial um, goods and engagement in, in colonial trade, but the contribution of of those to GDP. Um, is still relatively small. I mean, the Dutch are making a lot more money. They, they make a, they, the, the Dutch make as much money selling arms to the rest of Europe as they do from the Dutch East India Company. So, um, the, you know, and, and Central Europe is sort of several steps away. So while individuals continue to go, the, the activities of, of, of the rulers is, uh, they, there are some ventures that the, Brandenburg sets up an African company which yeah. trades in slaves and things like this, but they're they they're very much um, remains tertiary interests. To, to as you know, it's not until Prussia that they actually get African colonies themselves. Mm. So, of course, it would be criminal if he didn't talk about Napoleon and his involvement. How does he manage to take down the empire? Is it by sheer force, or is does he like? Walk, walk into the throne room and you're not the, this is done this is the thing you're not the emperor anymore no this is this is a project uh, product of, of of long and bitter fighting so the the french revolutionary wars actually, but actually i want to again change a little go back a little earlier are, are the emperor worried when the french revolution takes place as we know this is kind of was the era of revolution mm. so where they worried that the Revolution would take place in Germany as well, or where they? Yes, there are definitely there are definitely some fears of this, and it doesn't help that um, fairly conventional um, protests uh, protesters um, adopt the revolutionary symbols like the Liberty Hat and the Liberty Tree and things like that that make them mm-hmm. seem even more frightening, and that's obviously why they're adopting those symbols. Um, but there isn't really any any you know one, beneath that that fear there isn't any serious danger. The number of genuine enthusiasts for the type of French revolutionary ideals are relatively few within the empire, um, and that's partly because the empire was relatively good at solving um, ordinary people's problems compared to the French monarchy. Uh, and the French monarchy was 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 bankrupt and 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 and. Yeah. Um, seen as by by the, the 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 powerful elites in France as incapable of reform, and you don't have that kind of sense of, of um, regime failure within the empire. So um, the the situation is very different. But from the Austrians' point of view, yeah, the revolution is a disaster because France, by that point, is is Austria's main ally, and so the revolution takes out France as being a major ally. And as a, therefore, as a potential counterweight against Prussia, so it makes managing the empire much more difficult. So, what you talked about this a little bit in the middle of the book, I believe, or late third fourth of the book, that they were hoping that Napoleon will help them keep the empire, but unfortunately, that doesn't happen. 
Yes, I mean the the the, the thing is in that you have a um, as I say the Revolutionary Wars was hard fought campaigns, um, but the the critical thing is that Prussia is bankrupt. Um, Prussia has just taken over a major chunk of Poland in the partitions of Poland that removed Poland from the map. It faces a Polish insurrection. Um, but it does split Poland between Russia and it does. Yes, I mean, Russia, right? Yeah, the the the, may, the 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 two powers that are pushing for the partitions of Poland are, are um, Prussia and uh, and Russia. Austria participates in two out of the three, mainly because it wants to make sure that the other two don't get too much. But it would have preferred to have, to have seen Poland survive um, because it, 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 it as a buffer against um, further Austrian, uh, sorry, further Prussian and Russian expansion. So. The, th the thing is, we think of Prussia as being this really powerful state. It's actually a very brittle state. And the Polish insurrection drains it of resources. It can't fight a war on two fronts. Um, so rather than carrying on fighting the revolutionary French, it pulls out of that war in 1795 to concentrate on suppressing the Poles uh, and just recovering from, from exhaustion. And in pulling out of the war, it takes out the whole of the north of Germany, it forces the other German principalities in the north to be neutral. So effectively, the empire is basically partitioned at that point, and the Austrians are desperate, and they now become much more rapacious and harsh in their dealings mm. with the various smaller German principalities, who begin to think, well, the Austrians aren't treating us right, maybe we'll get a better deal from the French. And so the, 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 the whole kind of... But the French have no... Oh, well, the French actually, the, the French are prepared to deal with those princes that are um, going to provide troops. And this is ultimately what, what Napoleon, he sees this as his opportunity. So he does a deal with, with 16 princes in 1806, in July of 1806, um, and they renounce their membership of the empire and they, they form the Confederation of the Rhine, which is this organization which is allied to the French. And uh, the writing is on the wall, definitely now. And the, the, the Austrians fear that Napoleon will usurp um, the imperial title and will use that as a, uh, as a means to reorganize Germany. So they then formally dissolve the empire in August of 1806. Um, what would you say that? What is it? Do you think that if Napoleon hadn't done this, that the empire would have survived for longer, or do you think that a revolution would eventually take place? Well, that's that's yeah. As I say, that's one of the one of the big um, one of the big questions. So, if there hadn't have been a French Revolution, if there hadn't have been Napoleon, would would the empire have continued? And I th I I am more pessimistic than some writers have been. I think that um, its ability to um, uh, to cope with mundane problems so problems of indebtedness of towns um, protests by peasants uh, minor disputes and so forth have become is being eroded um, because it, the whole system was becoming more and more inflexible and the, the attempts to resolve problems by fixing things in writing um, were making things actually paradoxically harder to, to, to adjust because and the, the possibilities of change were diminishing. So I think that that kind of political system um, would not have coped with the other big changes that were happening in Europe, which were, of course, you know, to do with the Enlightenment, so changes in the in ideas, but also changes in the economy, 
and society that were underway and the kind of things that were basically are going to 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 lead to the 1848 revolutions um so uh, you know there would have been some kind of major shifts and as i say the the tensions between austria and prussia were um were such that that that, that, that further conflict was likely So would you say the decline was a slow and painful, like already said, it was a quick death to put it that would, way? Yes, it's much it's much quicker. Yes, I mean people are not expecting the end. Um, they think that somehow the empire will will continue. They can't really think of any alternative to it. So all the suggestions for reform and so on really are just about tinkering with the existing structure. So, yeah, um, Francis the Second's. Um, abdication and dissolution of the empire is, is a bit of a shock. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. And if you want to know more about the empire, I would highly recommend reading Professor Wilson's book, where he goes much more in depth than, than we have in this episode. And before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote, any social media you wish to share, or any link you wish me to put in the description? Um, well, uh, I, I, you can you can certainly mention that I will have a, a forthcoming book in the autumn of 2022 on um, uh, reappraising um, the military history of German-speaking Europe from um, 1500 to the present day. So look out for that. I will. Thank you so much for coming. We are okay. this is well that aged well. We are available on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find a podcast. And please, before you go, after you just finish this podcast, if you like the episode, consider checking more episodes out that you definitely find something that you like. And consider rating us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. And uh, please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Okay. Thank you.